So. so yeah. I, hmm. Um. Well. Well, good morning. And if you're new to New Spring, you've just figured out you've wandered into a very strange church. <laughs> kind of an eclectic bunch around here. You do know Lance and I are both from Texas. And, and every once in a while, we just have to do a country song. And we, the, the title today is Why is Sex So Complicated? And you need to know that the song... <laughs> The, the, the other song that we, we had two songs to, to think about. One was, uh, you know, the old song, Two of a Kind, that both of us have loved for a long time. But the other song that we were thinking about was, I shaved my legs for this. And so, I just... <laughs> <laughs> kind of guess why we settled on this one. <laughs> Our series is called... And it's stuff that we don't talk about. And if you know that my title is sex today, you would say, well, Mark, I don't know that really, I mean, people talk a lot about sex, but I don't think they'd say what we're going to say today. I think the dialogue that you and I are about to have, and especially not, not you and me, but the dialogue we're going to have from, from God to us, I think you're going to see pretty clearly we're going to cover some things today that people aren't talking about, but should be talking about. Um, and, and the title is, Why is Sex So Complicated? As I said a moment ago, I did grow up in Texas, and I was a product of the, the Texas public school system, Fort Worth school system. And I remember real clearly when sex education was being introduced into the curriculum in the public schools. I was just a kid. And I knew it was coming, but what was really interesting sometimes was to listen to the adults talk about it, because the adults were really, I mean, they were freaking me out, because you would just hear people talk in hushed tones. They would collect together in little groups and, and talk about sex education, and I got to thinking, boy, it's kind of scary, because it sounded really complicated, you know? I'd heard the high schoolers talk about, you know, trigonometry and functions and statistics and anatomy and physiology and really, really tough courses, so I got to thinking, maybe sex education is going to be this really, really tough, tough course, because listening to the adults, it sounded like I was headed for a pretty serious subject. But I got into it, and you know, a few days into it, I thought, this isn't complicated. And the biology of it, and the physicality, physiology of it, it isn't really complicated. So what is it that makes sex so complicated? And I think, you know, from the very beginning, just by looking at the title, we're not talking about the, the biology of sex. We're certainly not talking about the physical nature of it. Definitely, it can have some complications for people on, on occasions. And there, there are things to learn about sex, no doubt about that, but you understand clearly that's for, for other, other people to talk about, other professionals to talk about. Most of the time, though, when we talk about sex being complicated, we're talking about the emotions that are associated with it. And we're talking about the relationship that we have with the most important person in our life and the complications that arise over the subject of sex. And so today, we want to take those we want to take them face, face on. We, we want to talk about what makes sex so complicated. But one of the things that I'm going to do today in, in this morning's talk, and, and I don't really know that you could call this a sermon, what I'd like to do is I would like to just go to the Bible today and give you a lot of verses. At times, you may feel like you're drinking out of a fire hose. And if you're taking notes, you may have a, a challenging time you know, staying with my train of thought because I'm just going to take you from Scripture to Scripture to Scripture. And sometimes we'll look at a Scripture and it'll, it'll emphasize something that we've already talked about. And so you'll say, well, maybe we've already covered this, but I think you'll see a different aspect of it as we go from Scripture to Scripture. 
But the thing that I want to do today, as I said, is I want us to go to the Bible and see what God has to say about sex. Because for some of you, and by the way, again, forgive me for breaking a sentence. I, I hope that you got all the disclaimers in my email and what Lance said. This is, this is going to be a pretty frank talk today, okay? And some of us, I know, get a little squeamish, especially if you come from a very traditional church background. You can say, I, I can't believe they're talking about sex in church. You know, is, is it okay to talk about sex in church? Well, that would be like asking Bill Gates if it's okay for him to talk about Microsoft. Because God invented sex. Sex wasn't invented by people. Sex was invented by God. It was a gift that God gave to the human race. And he, let me just tell you this. Anytime you ever talk about sex and you back God out of the equation, you, you'll wind up so messed up. Let, let me give you an example of what I mean by that. If I said to you that sex was only for procreation... You would probably, I mean, maybe not literally, but mentally at least, you would hoot me off the stage, and you should, because sex is not only for procreation. Procreation is just one, one byproduct of sex. But if I were to say to you, and, and there have been, you know, very weird churches through the years that have taught that sex is only for procreation, if I told you that, you would say, that, Mark, that is, that is a crazy nut job, you know, weird religion kind of viewpoint. But, you know, with evolution today, and it's, you know, it's the main it's the predominant thought that's taught to us in the public sphere of how we got here, that there is no God, that we just got here by God's, I mean, excuse me, we just got here by, by accident. If, if you take evolution for, for a, a source of how we all got here, it's going to really mess you up with sex because when you look at evolutionary psychology, all they know to do is to go to the science of attraction and say, well, we were attracted to certain people because in, you know, in the earliest stages Man wanted to procreate, and he, he wanted to extend his line, so he picked a woman that he thought was going to be able to bear you know, offspring. So isn't it strange that if you back God out of the equation, we go back to these weird positions that we know are wrong? Today, though, when we start looking at what God has to say about sex, it is, it is awesome. So I want to just take you, first of all, to the first mention of sex in the Bible, and that would be in the book of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And interestingly, this is the first marriage. When God put the first man and the woman together, he gave them these words. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, that's kind of euphemistic, but that is the first mention in the Bible of sex. They, too, become one flesh. That is what happens in sex. Two people become one. I find it interesting that the very next verse is verse 25. It says to the, the two of them, the man and his wife, were naked, but they felt no shame. See, they become one flesh, and then God instantly says they were naked, and they become one flesh. Now, there have been some weird churches through the years that have taught that sin, the original sin, was sex. In other words, you know, what we have in the Bible is about eating the fruit, but really what happened was Adam and Eve accidentally discovered sex, and they sinned against God. I assure you, there's nothing close to that in the Scripture. In fact, Adam and Eve were having sex before, you know, they ate the fruit on the tree. In fact, that was the last time a man and a woman ever had great or perfect sex together. Really, I guess you could say perfect sex was before sin. Adam and Eve had it. But let me just say this, if, if I could just follow flight plan from the beginning and give you what the Bible has to say about great sex, there is an order to great sex. Today, it, it's pretty much, we're pretty much focused on the physical nature of sex, but in the Bible, there is an order that goes something like this. The first thing that happens is you value the person, and then out of value comes security, and out of security becomes oneness, and then sex is a physical manifestation of that oneness. So first of all, there's honor, there's security in the relationship, 
there's oneness, and then sex. What happens today is there are a lot of people that get into sex and hope that sex will produce value. Sex will produce security. Sex will produce oneness. And it just never works that way. In fact, one of the things that I, I really struggle with is I listen to people talk today. I talk to people that, you know, and I'm not just talking about casual hookups. I'm talking about people that say, we got a relationship, and then it goes into whatever the committed relationship means. We've got a relationship, and we're going to see if we're sexually compatible, if, we're, you know, if, if, it's, if, it, if the sex is good. And then if it is, we might stay together. Well, that's so backwards because the only way sex can be good is if it is committed. And if in commitment, you know, comes out of honor and value. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, the Bible says we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy. Now, you know, today in, in our world of hookups, you know, there are people that just get together for, for a casual weekend of sex. They don't necessarily have any commitment with each other. It's just recreational sex. And God says we must not pursue the kind of sex that doesn't lead or that, excuse me, that avoids commitment and intimacy. And somebody could look at that and say, well, that's just, you know, God being old school. This would have been a good message in 1922. But look at what God says, and this is for our benefit. He says we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. My gut instinct is that in the thousands of people that are going to attend New Spring this weekend, there's going to be somebody that that resonates with. Somebody that would say, you know, Mark, to be honest with you, I've got a lot of sex partners in my life, and, and I, you know, I should be having, by the world's definition, fulfilled sex, but the f- fact of the matter is, I'm more lonely than ever. God says that kind of sex, or in that kind of sex, people can never become one. Let me really go old school on you for a moment, but if you want to live a successful life, if you want to have a fulfilling life, then you and I need to really pay attention to this next thing. God has given us marriage. God has given us marriage as an environment for sex. Here is why God has given us marriage. In in, in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 2, it says, sex drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and to provide for a balanced and fulfilling sex life in a world of sexual disorder. It's really strong. I love the language of the two verbs that God uses. God says marriage is strong enough, number one, to contain your sexual desires. Sex clearly is a raw appetite. It's a raw appetite that has deep meaning. Sometimes I think that's where the complication comes in. But God has given us marriage as a way for us to express ourselves in a sexual way that contains our sex drives. But that's not the only reason why marriage is important to us. Certainly it gives us an opportunity for us to express ourselves sexually. But the Bible says it also provides for a balanced and fulfilled sex life. A few weeks ago I was talking to you about entertainment and I said that you know, when you, you know, when you go to watch a movie or something a day and there's going to be sex in the movie, very rarely is it ever sex between a committed husband and wife. Because the idea is, you know, who could be fulfilled by that? To be fulfilled, you have to have somebody new. And yet, what God teaches us here is that a fulfilling sex life comes when there is commitment, when there is honor, value, and when there is security, and there is oneness. Because in a way, sex confirms the oneness. If there's not oneness, if there's not value, if there's not security in this relationship, if it is not committed until death do us part, then really sex is a lie. 
because we are, we are joining ourselves physically in union, but we're not joined together spiritually and emotionally in union. Sex is a way of confirming the relationship that already exists. And, and there's a really important a, a phrase in this particular verse that says, let me read it one more time. Sex drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and to provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. Now, I, I've kind of hinted this already, and I just want to stop right now and say it. I know that for some of us today, my talk is going to be really old world, old school. And I know that you're going to say, Mark, you just don't know what the world is like in 2010. Yeah, I do. I just read it right there. The Bible says it's a world of sexual disorder. That is where we are. That is the world that you and I live in. My question for you and me is, even if the world is a world of sex, in a world of sexual disorder, do we want to be part of that? I mean, do we want to be sexually dysfunctional? Just, I mean, you know, it was like when I was a kid, I used to tell my mom, but everybody's doing this. And my mom would always ask me if everybody jumped off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff? Didn't you get tired of hearing that? But let me just ask you that. If, if, if everybody's in a world of sexual disorder, do you want to be in that world? And by the way, there's nothing new about that. You know, <laughs> I've already gotten on evolution a little bit. Let me just get on it again. One of the statements just makes me want to kick a hole in the wall is about we're evolved. Oh, Yeah. We're a wreck. We're a world of dysfunction. We're having a hard time holding marriages together. We're having a hard time finding really value and meaning in life. We got technology up to our eyeballs, and yet we just have a hard time with the simplest human relationships. No, we're not evolved. In fact, not much has changed. One of the things that I found interesting, when I just started looking in the Bible for this idea of sexual dysfunction, I found some verses that are like 3,000 years old, but they sound to me like they could have been written this morning for America. In Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 11, the Bible says sex is now anarchy. Anyone is fair game. Now, in my grandparents' time, there were sort of rules about man-woman things. Like, for instance, no man of any self-worth would pursue a married woman. No woman of, with any self-worth would pursue a married man. And I'm not talking about God stuff. I'm not talking about religious or Christian. I'm just talking about just culture. I mean, there were words for people. There were names for people that pursued people who were, who were taken, engaged. People that were in, you know, relationships. There, there were names for people that tried to break up relationships. Not anymore. Listen, to, that's what the Bible says there. Sex is now anarchy. There are no rules. Anarchy means there's no government. Sex is now anarchy. Anyone is fair game. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 11, wine and whiskey leave my people in a stupor. They ask questions of a dead tree, expect answers from a sturdy walking stick. Let me tell you what, what, what the Bible means about that. People in those days were worshiping idols. And, and one of the prophets said, people don't stop and think. They buy a piece of wood, they carve part of it out and worship it, they take the rest of the wood and cook their dinner with it. And God is saying, Somebody else stop and think about that. And, and we can look back on that area and we say, yeah, it really is foolish because after all, what, you know, what God is saying is right. They're, they're asking questions of a dead tree or they're, they're asking for their prayers to be answered from a walking stick. In other words, carved wood. But by the way, don't people worship things today that don't matter? We worship sports. We worship celebrity. We worship technology. Stuff that could never get us out of trouble if we were in trouble. And God is saying this, and by the way, he's talking about his people. He's not talking about other people. He's talking about this will be tantamount to people in the church today. God is saying wine and whiskey leave my people in a stupor. They ask questions of a dead tree. They're worshiping stuff that don't matter. Drunk on sex, they can't find their way home. 
they've replaced God, they've replaced their God with their genitals. If that isn't 2010 America, I don't know what is. In other words, sex, their, their, their genitals have become their God. That's a world of sexual dysfunction. Hosea chapter 4, verse 18. When the beer runs out, it's sex, sex, and more sex. Bold and sordid debauchery. How they love it. The whirlwind has them in its clutches. Their sex worship leaves them finally impotent. What a strange statement. In other words, these people are so saturated and so deep in debauch, debauchery and dysfunctional sex, God is saying after a while, the sex doesn't satisfy anymore. I was reading an article in the index page of MSN the other day, and it certainly was not a religious article. It had no religious background. It was just a typical article like you'd find in a national news, news magazine. And the writer of the article was talking about how, how common sex has become today. It's everywhere. You can't avoid it. And his, his point, he, as he lamented that, he said the problem is that sex isn't sexy anymore. It's exactly what God is saying. God is saying they worship sex. It's gotten deeper and darker and dirtier. And after a while, it doesn't satisfy. So God is saying, look, this is why he invented marriage. Marriage is here to contain your sexual desires, but at the same time to provide for a fulfilling sex life, a sex life where there is meaning and a life that makes you pleased. So let me just take the last few minutes of my talk this morning, and I want to share with you a couple of texts about how sex is supposed to work. I love these scriptures because they just simplify for us how sex is supposed to work and and what what it's all about. I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, huge verse. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. God is saying, men and women, when you go into the bedroom, you're thinking about the other person. See, one of the problems with Americans and maybe people around the world today is that when people get into a sex life, it is all about being personally fulfilled. But God is saying, go in there thinking about fulfilling the other person's needs. If you're married today, you just ought to try that as a sex experiment. The next time you're in the bedroom and the candles are flickering, the lights are low, and you go in there and you've got soft music on the radio, as we heard, you go in there thinking, what can I do to please her? What can I do to please him? Now, time out. I know how some of you think, and especially guys, okay? Some of you guys are going to take this, and you're going to go home, and you said, Mark said today. That the Bible says you're supposed to go in the bedroom thinking about how to please me. Let me give you my list. <laughs> That's not how it works. You know, on a different topic, I've talked about forgiveness before, and somebody said, God says you have to forgive me. That's not how it works. God say you go into the room thinking about the other person. This is how sexy, this is why sex is so complicated is you got people thinking about how they can be pleased and, and after a while it gets so frustrating. You got two people who are having sex, they're just going through the motions because the, tonight's the night or you, you know, you're married so you're supposed to have sex and it's like it doesn't really mean anything anymore. We're just checking the box and say we had sex because what's happened is you got two people that aren't thinking about pleasing the other person and it's like, okay, routine. Hey, did you know that was in the Bible? Isn't that, and, and don't you find this interesting that God is talking about sex and pleasing the other person? God is saying, go in there thinking about the other person. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. The husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Pretty cool. Some of you just got a brand new scripture verse. That's your life verse. You're going to emboss it on gold on the cover of your Bible and say, this is mine. 
you got to be really old school church person to know what that means, right? I, I, before you, guys, before you make that your life first, listen to the next one. You'll like this even better. Gals too. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, I can pretty well tell you I know what's going on here in this church because Paul was writing this letter to the church of Corinth. And I'm guessing that what was happening is there were some, there were some sexual issues between couples going on in the church. And, and there was a guy that probably, or a gal, I don't know, I don't know how the gender worked, but let's just say it was a guy that was kind of saying, I think, you know, this is, this is a good time for us. And, not, and, and, and the wife is saying, oh, I'm sorry, babe, not tonight. I'm praying. This is a night of prayer. I've given this over to God. Well, how about tomorrow night? Oh, I'm going to be praying tomorrow night too. <laughs> how about next week? This is a long time of prayer. <laughs> I may be praying for months. And, and, and so God said, I see right through that. And, and God is saying, look, it is, by the way, isn't it interesting? We've got the Bible here talking about frequency. And God is saying, you don't deprive the other person. I mean, you wouldn't, I mean, if you love somebody, you wouldn't deprive them of food, you wouldn't deprive them of water, you wouldn't deprive them of a place to live. And God is saying, hey, sex is a raw appetite. You, you don't deprive the other person. And God is saying, if you, you know, if, you, if, it's, if it's really prayer, then you both need to agree on it. It needs to be short. I mean, isn't this interesting? God is saying, shorten the time of prayer so you can have sex. Some of you, I have just freaked you out. You had no idea stuff was in the Bible. There's going to be a run on Bibles in the bookstore after the service today. And God said, look, because this is the thing. Marriage is meant, it's strong enough to contain sex drives, but God is saying it needs to function that way. It needs to contain sex drives. One more verse and I'll be through. And some of you can let that deep breath out that you took in since I started. Proverbs 5.15, drink water from your own well. You know what that means. Share your love only with your wife. And now God has a question for the so-called sexually active, sexually sophisticated world that you and I live in. And I think you're going to be able to see exactly what he's talking about here. Why spill, I'm talking to men here, but we could just easily be talking to women. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets having sex with just anyone? Now, let me tell you a little bit about what the writer's talking about. What he's, well, he's, first of all, he's talking about marriage sex, in which two people love each other more than anybody else in the world, and they're completely committed to each other for life. They have honor and value in their relationship. They both feel a sense of security, and sex is a manifestation of the oneness they feel. Here, we're talking about drinking water from a cold, refreshing spring. Now, all of a sudden, he's comparing sex with just anybody to drinking water that comes out of the gutter. Get that image in your mind? Verse 17, talking about the spring again. You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. One of my favorite lines in the Bible. Let your wife, or if he's talking to men, so he just easily be talking to women, to women about letting your husband. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. I could have just talked the whole day on that one line. Let your spouse be a fountain. Let your spouse. See, that's proactive. 
Because here's the thing. If you, don't, if you don't focus proactively on the person that you're married to, your attention will get moved elsewhere. That's just the way the world works. And, and God is saying, let your wife be a fountain of blessing. Now, I believe this works two ways. And I wish I knew how to preach because if I did, I could get this across. But I'm going to take a crack at it anyway. God is saying, when you're married to somebody, you need to understand that that person has been given by God to you to bless you. But I think it also means something else. If you are fully committed to your wife or to your husband and your attention is focused on them and they are the object of your sexual desire, you are living your life in a way where God can pour out his blessings on you. If you honor your wife, if you honor your husband in a world of sexual dysfunction, you will be so different. You will stand out and God, I mean, think about this. I didn't even mean to talk about this and I'm getting off track a little bit, but think about this. When the world was about to be judged, God looked for a guy named Noah who would do the right thing. And I'm convinced today that God is looking, the Bible says his eyes are going back and forth across the world, just looking for people that he can bless. And I believe with all my heart, and I'm going to be talking about blessing all during the month of November this year. I am convinced that God is looking for men and women he can bless. And that's why the Bible says, let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. If you honor her, God can bless you. If you honor your husband, God can bless you. And I'll get off that, but that's a good line. Verse 18, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Now, when God tells us something here, you got to realize he's he's pulling us back from the culture. What would be the opposite of that? The opposite would be, well, I was attracted to her when she was young, was attracted to him when he's young, but the feeling's gone, I just can't get it back. God is saying, no, rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, graceful doe. I cannot figure out why they keep talking about animals in the Old Testament. Last year, we talked about Solomon. He said, you know, your hair is like a flock of goats. And I said, guys, don't try that. We don't think it works today. (laughs) Okay, here's the line. Take a deep breath. Let her breasts satisfy you always. Did you know that was in the Bible? Now, guys, you and I tend to be, we're, we're we're more motivated sexually by sight. And God knows that. Your wife's breasts won't satisfy you if you're looking at other people's. If you're on the internet looking at porn, if you're looking at other women going to the strip club, that's just keeping it real here, right? Her breasts won't satisfy. A lot of you guys, and I think here just one body part, but I think God understood clearly that women sometimes can be a little bit self-conscious about, about their appearance. And God is saying to men, you got to be careful about this. You got to be proactive. You have to let her body satisfy you at all times. And if you're looking at somebody else's parts, hers is not going to satisfy you. And why do you want to do that? Because you don't even know if the stuff is real. I warned you before you came in today. (laughs) You got my email. Verse 19, may you always be captivated by her love. This is a great word. The word captivated there is is the word for intoxicated. And this is great. Just hang with me and we'll be through in a second here. God is saying, this is great. When, When a man and woman have this kind of relationship where they're drinking from their own spring and they're not drinking from the gutters, all of a sudden... The water becomes intoxicating. Hey, what was Jesus' first miracle? 
I think he turned the water into wine. Where did he do it? At a wedding. That's what God is trying to tell us. If you will focus on your mate, if you'll focus on your wife, if you'll focus on your husband, if you will let that person be the source of all your fantasies and all your sexual desires and pour all your attention out on on her if you're a husband or him if you're a wife, if you will decide it is your wife who is the most beautiful woman in the world, if you will decide that your husband is the greatest guy in the world and put all of your attention on him, God says the water will turn to wine. And you know for some of you who are very young here today and you're thinking, I'm a Neanderthal for bringing this talk, I want to guarantee you there's some people who've been married here for a long time who could tell you, quite frankly, the sex is hotter than ever because the water has turned to wine. Oh, I'd be captivated, verse 20, my son, by an immoral woman or fondle the breast of a promiscuous woman. For the Lord sees clearly what a man does, examining every path he takes. An evil man, that means a wrongdoer in this fashion. An evil man is held captive by his own sins. They are ropes that catch and hold him. I've said this so many times today, I'm a little self-conscious about it. I realize clearly in 2010, today's talk is really old school. And I'm smart enough to know that you and I can walk out of here today and do whatever it is that we're going to do. I, I just want to seat at your table. I'm not trying to jam you. And I realize that a lot of you could walk out and say, Mark's just so out of touch. It's probably true. And you could walk out of here today and say, I think it's all wrong. I think great sex is having as many partners as I can get. I mean, it's Friday. I'm going to go to the bar. I'm going to hook up. May never see her again. May not even know his name. And God just has one thing to say to you, because here's the thing. God is concerned about you. And God is saying, what you don't know is if you live your life that way, you're setting a trap, and you're going to catch yourself in the trap. And the very things that you're doing right now, you may think that you're controlling them, but God is saying the day will come when they will be ropes and they will control you. And ladies and gentlemen, we don't have to look very far to see exactly what God is saying. Name Tiger Woods ring a bell? John Edwards, these are rich, powerful guys who thought they had the world, they thought they had control, and they found out they don't have any control at all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what we've learned today. God, I don't know where this message intersects us all, but you do, and and your Holy Spirit can tailor make it for us. Father, for all of us who are Married, I pray that you would just help us to really get what you're teaching us. And for those who want to be married, Father, I pray that you would help them even now to start living in a way that you can bless so that you can bring the right person into their lives. And Father, I pray for that person here today or maybe quite many who are struggling in this area, maybe with pornography, maybe with multiple sex partners. Father, please help them to understand that the most wonderful thing about you is that anyone can come to you turn from their old life and ask you for forgiveness and walk away clean. I pray that'll happen. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you pray with me for just one more moment? The most important thing in this world is for you to have an everlasting relationship with God. In other words, to have such a a relationship with him that he's in your life every day and you know that even if you were to die, it, you, would, you would just go instantly to be with God. 
How do you have that kind of relationship? Many people think you, do, you get it by going to church or by doing good things, but the Bible tells us it's a gift. God loves you so much, he wants to be in an everlasting relationship with you. He wants to adopt you into his family. He wants to forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future. And he wants to live with you forever. In scripture, you know, sometimes you, people wonder, why do Christians focus on the cross so much? It's just a symbol. But you understand the cross is our hope. It's the basis on which God can offer the gift. God put his son Jesus on a cross so that he would suffer for the sins that you and I have committed. And that anyone who wants to have a relationship with God can put their confidence in Jesus and have forgiveness and everlasting life. The Bible says it's a gift. And what do you, how do you get a gift? You ask for it. I want to pray a prayer. A, I'll pray it slowly so that you can pray it with me. It's not magic words, but these are just words that call out to God and ask for a gift. And if you would love to have a relationship with God today, trust me, he wants to have a relationship with you. All you have to do is ask. You have to mean it from your heart, but that's all that God asks. I'm going to pray, and if you like, you can pray with me. You don't have to pray out loud, but you can pray in your heart if you like. You ready? Dear God, I know I've done wrong, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe you love me with an unconditional love. I believe Jesus died for my sins, and I believe he arose from the grave. I ask you to save me, forgive me, and make me God's child. Give me the power to live a new life that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen.